Welcome to episode 13 of Advocacy in Court. We're going to be looking at uh, two topics. The first of these is what do we want to achieve if we make an opening? The second topic is common objections. When to make them, how to respond. Looking then at uh, opening statements. The starting observation is we don't have to make one. And we should only make one when the benefits of doing it outweigh any downside. Note too that from jurisdiction to jurisdiction there can be some rather limiting rules about what can go into an opening statement. Most importantly, if you do make an opening, you're making promises, which the decision maker, be it a single person or a jury, expects to be kept. So you always need to think carefully about how you can make an opening in light of your assessment of the witnesses that you expect to call. The less confidence you have in a witnesses or witnesses, the less detail you'll include in any opening statement. In deciding when to open, and if so, in what manner, you will also try your best to anticipate how a competent opponent would likely approach the same task, that is, will they make an opening? If so, will it be immediately after yours or only after you've closed your case? And if they do make such an opening, are they going to put the emphasis onto the facts or the law? And then you must also make an assessment of what will an opening do with respect to the decision maker? For example, if you're running a jury trial and the facts are fairly complex, then you may wish to use the opening, especially as the prosecutor, in order to lay out the journey on which the jury are going to be taken by you. On the other hand, if you're running a trial by judge alone in a civil case and the evidence of the witnesses has already been primarily set down in affidavits, then the trial judge really doesn't need your help in interpreting what they can read for themselves. A variation on that position, however, is when there is a trial by judge alone, but there is very strong community and so media interest in the case. In that situation, if it's your belief that the factual underpinnings of your case are very strong and that your witnesses will perform well, then there's much to be said for an opening which is being made not so much for the judge who doesn't need it, but for the media who need to get it right. As a general guide, if the P party, that is the prosecutor or the plaintiff, is concerned as to what may happen to one or more of their witnesses during cross-examination, then that's a good reason for the prosecutor or plaintiff's counsel to be rather sparse and sparing on the detail when they open. Likewise, when a criminal defence lawyer 
believes that they will probably not be calling their client the accused to give evidence, then the old adage, less is more and none may be best of all, probably applies. If you've decided to make an opening, then the next issue for you is is to the manner and the content of it. So will it be entirely spoken? Will it be partly or largely written? What kind of mixture between spoken and written will you follow? Beyond that, will you use aids such as a chronology, location maps and photographs that you have no doubt will be admissible? Depending upon the length and the complexity of the issues, you'll have to carefully consider organisational questions such as Will I use topics during this openings? If I am using topics, how will I grab and maintain the interest of the audience from start to finish? Whether or not you make an opening in a case, the discipline of thinking about what would I put in an opening, in what order and with what emphasis, is a useful check upon your case theory and the extent of preparedness for the hearing to come. By way of a simple illustration of an opening, let's imagine that Jack and Jill have been charged with theft of water. Here is what a prosecutor might say in an opening. There was a theft of our precious water by the defendants, Jack and Jill. They made careful preparations, hiding their pail, shown here in this photograph, before setting off disguised as eco-tourists. They got the water, too much it seems, because first Jack and then Jill fell and were injured on the way back. Now the pathway that they followed is quite safe when it's dry. Yet, their clothes were streaked with mud when they were found. The water, alas, has been lost, both to them and to us. Turning now to the topic of making and responding to objections. There is a useful guideline that you should only take an objection when you have a good legal basis for it and, second test, the tactical advantage of making it outweighs the tactical downside. Sometimes the best thing that you can do for your case is allow your opponent to display their incompetence without interruption from you. The most common objections are the following. Relevance. Does the question seek to elicit something that is relevant to an issue in the case? Next, the multi-part question. There may be two, three or four parts when a question should have only one. The problem with a multi-part question is is that when the witness answers it, no one apart from the witness knows whether 
they're answering each and every part of the question or only the first bit or only the last bit. For that reason, always object. Leading the witness to suggest an answer on something that is an issue in the case um, is always objectionable. Note that it's not the leading nature of the question which of itself is objectionable. It's only when it's referring to something where the parties are in dispute. Repetition, that is, re-asking a question, either in chief or cross, when it's already been answered, is objectionable because it has been asked and answered. Asking a witness a question that calls for speculation, such as what does some other person think or what might some other person have thought, is objectionable. There are some issues which, depending upon your jurisdiction, can only be raised with the leave of the court. Two examples which arise during cross-examination are impugning the credibility of the witness or impugning the character of an accused. Once your opponent makes the objection, how do you respond? Well, if it's a well-based objection, concede immediately. On the other hand, if it is an objection which is based on a misunderstanding of the law by your opponent, then politely but resolutely point that out. You may have a good argument as to why something is relevant. You may have a good argument too as to why the question that you've asked was asked because it was efficient to ask it in that manner, i.e. as a closed question, but it was not leading on an issue. Do note, though, that when the bench realises that an advocate is somewhat out of their depth in making objections about the wrong things, they will often tell the person against whom the objections are being made simply to change the form of the question so that the time of the court is not wasted. Finally, when you are cross-examining, note that an objection may be made by your opponent, for example, as to relevance, and you are entitled to say, Your Honour, I undertake that its relevance will become apparent before the end of my cross-examination. When I say you're entitled to say that, your entitlement depends upon your being able to deliver on the promise. It is not a good position to be in if your opponent or the judge points out to you at the end of the cross-examination that you've not delivered on that undertaking. This comment about making an undertaking during your cross-examination serves as a notice that in episode 14, the next episode, we turn our attention to how to cross-examine. Bye for now.